This is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. I'm Teresa Carey. Today is Friday, May 12th. Stick with us. I've got Fraser Kansteiner with me today to give you all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. So, Teresa, why don't you kind of kick off this news rundown with something that, that could be a pretty big moment for the Alzheimer's community? Sure. Annalie Armstrong reported this story. She said that last week, Eli Lilly released some results from a phase three trial that were, well, really the Alzheimer's community were on the edge of their seats for these results. And what they found in the trial was that the drug slowed cognitive decline by 35%. So that beat Lakembi, which was about 27%. This is a big deal in the Alzheimer's class, but there is a caveat. Analysts from Mizuho Securities and SVB Securities took a closer look at the data, and they both suggested that the efficacy might actually be more similar to Lakembi's. In fact, Mizuho Securities wrote that in a note to its clients. So, I mean, obviously, everyone is is curious how this stacks up to Lakembi. So in what other ways did Eli Lilly's drug compare to Biogen's? Yes, that's a good question. As I mentioned, Annalie Armstrong reported on this story, and in her article, she wrote that Eli Lilly's drug also had a higher rate of side effects mm-hmm. that suggest brain swelling or bleeding, which is a known issue for this class of medicines. But this really is an optimistic moment for the Alzheimer's community. As you may know, there hasn't been any options for drugs, and there have been a lot of trials and failures. So if this therapy gets approved, then that would mean there are two new Alzheimer's treatments on the market because Lakembi got an FDA-accelerated approval in January. Right. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think that we've gone from basically having nothing in the field to, to having, you know, potentially two competing therapies at the totally. same time. Mm-hmm. Fraser, can you tell me about the story you reported on on the over-the-counter birth control pill? Yeah, definitely. So earlier this week, there was an FDA advisory committee meeting uh, that was weighing the potential over-the-counter approval of Perigo's Opil. Uh, it's a once-daily uh, birth control pill. Uh, currently, all birth control pills in the U.S. are prescription products. Um, so the idea here is that this would remove a pretty significant barrier to access to, to birth control. Uh, really pretty significant, given the uh, kind of political environment we find ourselves in. So Perigo actually uh, aced its advisory committee meeting. Panelists voted 17 to 0. Uh, it, it is important to note, of course, that the advisory committee meeting, you know, doesn't signify a a formal approval, um, but uh, it it does bode well for the -the over-the-counter approval prospects for Opel later this year. So the vote was unanimous, and it happened despite questions from the FDA advisory committee about responsible over-the-counter use of this drug in the real world. I know that you also recently reported on the -the over-the-counter approval of Narcan, the opioid overdose reversal drug. So is this responsible use question, commonly a concern in these decisions for over-the-counter approvals, or was this more unique to this drug in particular? Yeah, I mean, uh, responsible use does play into these over-the-counter decisions pretty frequently. Uh, I, I think that with Opil, it's it's a bit more pertinent. A lot of the question about responsible use also came down to contraindications around current or historic breast cancer. 
during the adcom uh, a lot of the panelists said that that women who've had breast cancer are pretty highly informed about the risks and would likely uh, self-deselect so essentially they would you know decide not to use this product because it does carry that risk mm-hmm. and Fraser we also have some news to cover this week on the business side of things so can you tell us about the current state of MAs yeah, so this spring we had the largest M&A deal in pharma since 2019, uh, and, and that came in the form of Pfizer's uh, $43 billion acquisition of CGen. Uh, that happened during a quarter when all other pharma deals added up to just $8.8 billion. Okay, so the question is, does that deal signal that the industry is ready to return to wheeling and dealing, or was that just an anomaly? Yeah, I mean, could be. Kevin Kevin Dunlevy reported on this story, and and he wrote that analysts believe the market floodgates are are ready to open. Uh, Subin Barrick of Ernst and Young uh, told Fierce that companies are are essentially ready to pull the trigger. Uh, and then West Monroe analyst Jennifer O'Brien added that uh, a perfect storm of industry conditions will cause firms to seek deals. Uh, on the pharma side, there are several factors favoring. Uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Some examples are patent expirations for blockbuster drugs, uh, divestitures designed to focus companies on their pharma businesses, and and then a $1.5 trillion uh, uh, funding firepower that the industry has collectively. Uh, And when it comes to biotechs, their their capital funding has become scarce. It's been kind of a a tough time for for smaller biotechs. Uh, so, So many are trying to exit through a sale. Uh, and also with valuations down, the prices of biotechs have decreased, which actually makes them more attractive targets for a potential buyout. Okay. And we did have a medtech make a deal to sell, and that would be Baxter. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, Baxter announced the deal on Monday, and it's to sell off its biopharma solutions business, which uh, essentially offers a variety of products and services for the drug development process. Uh, Andrea Park reported this story, and, and she wrote that private equity firms Warburg, Pincus, and uh, Advent International will pay Baxter $4.25 billion in cash for the business. Uh, Baxter said in an announcement on Monday that it will use the proceeds from the sale to uh, pay down its debt, which which spiked after a $10.5 billion acquisition of Hillrom in late 2021. So essentially all this is happening is, is Baxter is undergoing a large restructuring. Uh, that restructuring includes a round of layoffs that could affect up to 3,000 jobs. Uh, and, and Baxter is also in the process of separating out two more of its businesses. Uh, within the next year or so, it plans to spin out the renal care and acute therapies divisions into a standalone kidney company. Thank you, Fraser. The last story I wanted to share today on the top line is the Roche recall of a set of COVID tests. If you all still have home COVID tests, the FDA wants you to double check the packaging. I did this myself just the other day when the FDA warned users of potential contaminated ingredients in these kits manufactured by Roche and SD Biosensor. Connor Hale reported this story. He wrote that the FDA issued an alert to consumers and healthcare providers saying that it has concerns about bacteria within the liquid solutions of the tests shipped with the pilot brand of home tests. So that's about 500,000 packages sold through CVS health pharmacies and about 16,000 tests that have been stocked with Amazon. 
So, I mean, you know, tons of us got COVID tests for free through the postal service via the U.S. government's at-home testing program. Uh, Mm -hmm. What does this mean for those tests? Well, the FDA said that none of the contaminated tests came from that program. So we're safe there. And it's also important to note that the FDA has not received any reports of injuries or infections so far. And that's all we have for this week's news. But after a word from our sponsor, Fraser, you and I are going to sit down again to talk in depth about the special series you've been covering in the top line the past few weeks on the on Narcan's over-the-counter approval. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. ZS is giving voice to patient centricity. Move beyond the buzzword to discover how to bring patient-led business models to life. Join me, Victoria Summers, principal in ZS's Patient Health and Equity Accelerator, as I discuss effective strategies, best practices, and real-world examples with ZS experts from across the industry. Bonus content features patients in their own words, sharing their personal health journeys. You can find us at ZS.com. Look for the Patient Centricity Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. public health emergency for COVID-19 officially ended yesterday, May 11th. It has been more than three years since the U.S. declared COVID a national health emergency. Now it's time to look back at what we all went through. There were nearly 7 million lives lost to the coronavirus, but there were also things to celebrate. The amazing progress made on vaccines and therapeutics. It's safe to say the pandemic reshaped the biopharma industry. So we at Fierce Pharma are asking you to tell us your pandemic stories in photographs. Consider it Biopharma's COVID yearbook, only this one will hopefully be published just once. Let's make it a reminder of what the life science community can achieve when all its members put their heads together. So please submit your photos to Fierce Pharma. For complete submission guidelines, take a look at the link in our show notes for today. You can find it at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. For the past few weeks since Narcan was approved for over-the-counter use, Fierce's Fraser Kansteiner has been investigating what that approval means for the opioid crisis. You've heard him talk with four experts. Now we're going to chat with Fraser about it. Fraser, you were the first at Fierce to report the news that the FDA gave an over-the-counter approval to the Narcan nasal spray, which is the overdose reversal medication for opioid overdoses. And as journalists, we have to report on the news, and you're covering a dozen stories a week and probably vetting even more. But once in a while, a story really speaks to you. And I think this over-the-counter Narcan story did that for you. You wanted to talk with everyone about it. And that's why we had this tremendous special series that we've had the past few episodes. So what was it about the Narcan over-the-counter news that spoke to your curiosity and drew you to want to dive deeper? I mean, there's so many aspects to it that I find interesting. Um, kind of just on a personal level, I've, I've covered the company that makes Narcan Emergent for a long time. Um, and they kind of famously had... Um, a COVID-19 vaccine manufacturing snafu. So they've been in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons uh, in, in the past couple of years. Um, so it was interesting to see them get this major win. And I think also purely from a business perspective, it's interesting because uh, we recently had generics to Narcan enter uh, the market. So 
uh, it's just a really curious development in terms of this particular drug and kind of what that means for sales. But much more so than that, there's this huge social component to it that I think we don't often get to dive into when we're writing about uh, the pharma industry. I mean, we're, we're talking about medicines that, you know, people depend on, um, but we really rarely think about the patient or get to really cover the patient in depth. And I think that given the nature of this drug, Narcan, as an overdose uh, reversal uh, drug, it's it's just much more tied into kind of the social component of the opioid epidemic. And and there, as we've you know heard talking to experts, so much of this comes down to education and kind of widespread use. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I mean, something else that was nice was was this got a lot of mainstream coverage. Um, you know, there was like a Rolling Stone article. Uh, you know, there were articles in I want to say like Vogue. Um, so, you know, it's something that caught a lot of people's attention, but that also meant there was this immediate kind of outpouring of uh, interest in talking to us further about this. So it was really easy to get connected with experts. And we immediately kind of found a lot of really smart people who could talk about this in a, a really nuanced way that goes beyond the boundaries of what we typically get to cover at Fierce. I'm pretty sure each one of your guests probably said in some form or another that everyone out there is touched by the opioid crisis in some way. Like we know someone who knows someone. Yeah. I think that that also kind of getting a bigger picture of, you know, who the, the population of opioid users is, was a really interesting aspect of these interviews. Um, you know, I think we have, you know, for better or worse, a lot of us in our heads have kind of a preconceived notion of like, oh, like a street drug user or something. But so many different populations are touched by this problem. And it's not always even illicit drug use. It can just be accidentally misusing medications you're prescribed through, you know, error or, you know, not not deliberate misuse. Mm -hmm. When the FDA granted the over-the-counter status to Narcan, were you surprised? No, um, there was a an adcom, uh, an advisory committee meeting where the FDA convenes outside experts to basically weigh in ahead of an approval on whether they think that the the drug should get approved. In this case, Narcan has been approved for a long time, but this was to convert its approval as a prescription drug into an over the counter one. Um, <clears throat> and something that happened there that was interesting was it got a unanimous backing from every single panelist, which doesn't often happen. There's usually some contention on these advisory committee meetings, but this was one where everyone across the board said, yes, this definitely should happen. Uh, and the FDA has actually been angling to make Narcan and Naloxone, which is the, the, the bigger drug, Narcan is one brand, um, has been angling to make naloxone available over the counter and just more easily accessible for for many years. Um, and last year, they kind of put out a report talking about why this was important, and they highlighted which products they thought were specifically good candidates for the over-the-counter approval. They singled out uh, Narcan, the nasal spray, by Emergent, and they also mentioned uh, an auto-injector formulation, uh, which is something we get into in the podcast, too. It's interesting. It's easy to use. It's very similar to an EpiPen, but uh, one issue there is cost. Uh, manufacturers have priced the auto-injector version pretty highly. When I heard the news, one of my first questions that came to my mind was, was will this greater accessibility to Narcan keep drug users from seeking addiction treatment? And you posed that question pretty much to all our guests. How did their responses differ? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that a couple of our, our interviewees sort of flat out said that this was a myth. They said, you know, that really the evidence shows that treating people with, uh, opioid use disorder treatments, uh, and even overdose reversal treatments like Narcan, uh, oftentimes kind of spurs recovery, or, you know, uh, kind of convinces people to maybe change their, their pattern of using. Um, we did hear from at least one expert, uh, that was Dr. Britton of the American Addiction Center, uh, that uh, he, he thought this risk was plausible. Um, he said that um, he could foresee people maybe essentially not, you know, choosing to use drugs because Narcan is more readily available, but maybe engaging in riskier drug use because it's it's easier to have this overdose reversal antidote uh, on hand. But across the board, I think everyone was in agreement this is a good decision and isn't going to essentially enable more drug use. Yeah. Adding on to that in terms of accessibility, you discuss the issue of access with your guests. And there are treatments for opioid use disorder, as you mentioned in some of your interviews, but getting access to them is another story. Like, for example, all 50 states, you said, have ways to get naloxone from a pharmacist. Narcan is the brand name version of naloxone. But sometimes pharmacies don't carry the drug. And then the other one you discussed was methadone, which is used for opioid use disorder and is typically only available at opioid treatment programs, which those aren't all over the map. So what sense did you get from your guests about the accessibility to Narcan? I think that there was a lot of optimism. Obviously, one big concern and unknown is the price of the over-the-counter version. Uh, the prescription version of Narcan is already pretty expensive. It can go up to, I think, over a hundred dollars. Um, and it, obviously it varies depending on where you are. Um, but at this point, emergent hasn't, uh, said what it's going to do to price the over the counter version. And oftentimes over the counter products, I mean, almost all the time over the counter products aren't covered by insurance. So that, that creates a big unknown. That being said, I think that everyone was really excited to hear that Narcan would be available in places like grocery stores, gas stations, uh, maybe even vending machines. Um, and I think this would go a long way toward eliminating some of the stigma that surrounds Narcan. Um, as you mentioned, oftentimes pharmacies simply wouldn't carry it. They would just say, no, we don't want to dispense this drug, even though there were access laws that would enable them to do so. Um, and I think one of the major access barriers that many of our guests brought up was stigma, that it's difficult to go into a pharmacy to be in a line with a bunch of people and say, I need this opioid overdose reversal drug. It's just a difficult thing to ask for publicly. And, and this might go a long way towards making it easier and more accessible and, and less burdensome to acquire. Yeah. And now if Narhan's going to be in first aid kits at schools, at Starbucks, you could be going into the grocery store or the pharmacy to buy it, not for yourself. Yeah, and a lot of the guests mentioned that as well, that really everyone ought to know how to use Narcan and, and everyone should more or less be carrying it with them just because, as you mentioned, everyone is touched by the opioid epidemic in some way. Uh, it's kind of a six degrees of separation thing. Um, and it's just useful to have. I mean, a, a big comparison that was made, I think, in multiple different interviews was the, the prevalence of Narcan or Naloxone in public places the same way that we have defibrillators in public places. Um, 
you know, a, a heart attack can happen anywhere and so can an overdose. You said everyone should know how to use it. It's pretty simple to use. It's a nasal spray. But for me, my first thought was, well, how would I know that I'm recognizing an opioid overdose and that I needed to use this? But then one of your guests reassured me when I posed that question and they said, well, it's benign. If you don't use it correctly or if I used it on someone who didn't need it, it's not a worry. Yeah. And it's not abusable either. Um, I mean, you know, other other drugs that are meant to treat opioid use disorder more broadly, like methadone or suboxone, uh, those do produce uh, like slight euphoric effects. Um, and, uh, you know, in theory, you could also abuse those drugs. But um, Narcan is just an opioid antagonist. It just blocks the opioid receptors in the brain. So all it does is keep opioids from working. It's not something where you can use it to get high essentially. And, and like you said, it's not really dangerous to use either. If you're not having um, an overdose or you haven't taken opioids, it just doesn't really do much of anything. Fraser, you spoke with four different experts who had different perspectives on this, but it fears you've been covering the pharma industry for several years. And I know I've learned a lot from you regarding it, all sorts of things like FDA approval process or how new drugs can impact a therapeutic area or even just the nuts and bolts of how they work. And so I wanted to ask you a question that you posed to the experts that you interviewed. What's going to happen next? How do you expect this to play out? Yeah, so I think the biggest near-term event that may happen is Harm Reduction Therapeutics, which is actually a nonprofit pharma company, has also uh, received, I believe, priority review for their uh, naloxone product. And they're specifically pursuing an over-the-counter approval right out the gate. Uh, that's going to be really interesting because, again, pricing on Narcan is unclear. Emergent is probably going to price in a way where they make some money. Um, but harm reduction therapeutics has almost set itself up in opposition to Emergent, where it's this, this nonprofit company, and it's really making a point that it wants its product to be available easily and cheaply for people who need it. Um, so that's that's one thing. I think beyond that, we're seeing some pretty big policy changes. There was the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act that was passed uh, late last year, uh, which uh, kind of eased access to methadone uh, and, and drugs like it. And uh, the Biden administration has specifically made fighting the opioid epidemic kind of a key pillar of its strategy. Um, and I just think we're seeing a lot of policy movement. Uh, but I think what also could potentially happen, some of our guests talked about this, is over-the-counter versions of naloxone could encourage other drug makers to kind of get in on the action. They may be interested in, in pursuing the space um, if there's a big market for these drugs in an over-the-counter format. Thank you so much for talking with me, Fraser, and for doing this series. It was really interesting. Yeah. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from the top line.